Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Today's episode is sponsored once again by Podcorn. Like many new podcasters, when we launched Locations Unknown, we had no idea if anyone would even listen. Now that we are gaining traction, we had to find sponsors for our show. For that, we use Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters like us to amazing sponsorship opportunities. Podcorn's mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control over how and when they monetize. If you are ready to start making money on your podcast, then check them out at podcorn.com. That's P-O-D-C-O-R-N.com. Thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me as always is a guy who can eat Captain Crunch and not cut the roof of his mouth, Mike Vandebogart. Thanks, Joe. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to the Locations Unknown podcast. Don't really have any updates for you guys this week, but if you want to support the show, uh, head over to our Facebook page and check out our hats and stickers. The, the hats look really good when you're out on the trail and, uh, you know, what makes a car look better than a, a giant bumper sticker on the back of it? So, so head <laughs> over to our Facebook store. <laughs> <laughs> I get asked all the time because the hats are cool and people don't know what it is. So you can be unique. They are cool. We, until we blow up and then uh, you won't be unique anymore. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think at some point we're planning to get some shirts made. So uh, stay tuned. Yeah. I should look into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll eventually get to that. Probably not. All right, and we'd also like to shout out to Flavio and Katie Rovertoni right in our hometown of Milwaukee. They're huge fans of the show, and um, just like last episode, we're just going to start giving shout outs to fans. So interact with us on Facebook, and you might hear your name called off on an obscure podcast, so that's pretty neat. <laughs> it's a big honor. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. October 2nd, 1999, three-year-old Jared Adedero and his six-year-old sister Jocelyn, as well as 11 other adults, were hiking the Big South Trail near Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. While hiking, Jared ran ahead no more than 100 feet and stopped to talk with some fishermen. After his brief time, Jared continued down the trail ahead of the group. This would be the last time anyone saw Jared. In the following days, a massive search and rescue operation failed to turn up any evidence. Join us this week as we piece together the tragic disappearance of Jared Adedero and the discovery years later that deepened the mystery. 
The Big South Trail is an 11-mile trail located at 8,440 feet in the rugged Comanche Peak Wilderness. And this is part of the Arapaho and Roosevelt National Forest. So it kind of sits in between them in different areas, eventually crossing into Rocky Mountain National Park. So it's actually kind of like a trifecta of national forests and parks. Yeah, and Joe, you've you've hiked in Rocky Mountain National Park before, haven't you? Yeah, I've I mean I've been there a lot of times. We've talked about it on the show. I am I don't think I've been to either of these three areas. Mm-hmm. Um but from the sound of it, it's something I'd want to go to because they have a few 14ers in there that I'll get at in some of the location profile. But they seem close together, which is not always common yeah. in the Rockies. So that's really nice for mountaineers that like me who live in Wisconsin and say me and Mike want to go out and climb a mountain. Well, we have the opportunity to do maybe a few of them in one trip instead of having to do one at a time. Yeah. So that's nice. But what we'll do is I'll talk a little bit about state and the region. So this area is 723,000 acres. So that's 1,131 square miles. So it's a big, a pretty big area, uh, especially for a young toddler going missing that can, barely talk being three years old it's a rugged area too um anyone who's hiked in the the rockies um it's pretty rugged uh so yeah it's you know the trails are pretty difficult yeah you know what it really when you really think about it because we've i've gone there a bunch and i know you've been there it always Mm -hmm. seems especially when you go on like the trail apps um i use all trails it always seems like they're not so bad and it's a mix of the altitude and it's totally deceiving because they're not really aggressive, but it is so rocky that when you're going yep. on, it just takes a lot out of you, a lot more than you usually think. Well, and then you never think like, okay, you know, 2000 foot elevation gain doesn't seem like a lot, but you're already at nine, 10,000 feet and you got a, you know, 40 pounds on your back. It, yeah. It adds up quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. So here's uh, just some fun information about the Arapahoe National Forest. It was established by Theodore Roosevelt, who's one of my favorite presidents because he was insane, literally. And uh, <laughs> there's some really cool stories. I just I just love the history of Theodore Roosevelt. My favorite one is when he yeah. like commandeered some ships to go fight, um, what was it, in, on Cuban shores? Like they told I'm me he couldn't sure. attack and he and his Rough Riders. Yeah. It was because he, he was leading the Rough Riders. And yep. they told him that they weren't going to attack. And he said, like, basically, screw you, stole three ships and went and attacked. <laughs> and, like, won. He was a pretty badass president. Oh, yeah, exactly. He was just just insane. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, he hunted everything and he was just a cool president. So it was established by him on July 1st, 1908. And the Roosevelt National Forest, originally part of the Medicine Bow Forest Reserve, was first named was the first named Colorado National Forest in 1910 and then was renamed by uh, President Herbert Hoover to honor Theodore Roosevelt in 1932. So it didn't start out as his, but in 32, they renamed it to yeah. Theodore Roosevelt. The Pawnee National Grassland was transferred to the Forest Service from soil con- the Soil Conservation Service in 1954, and it was designated a national grassland in 1960. And that's not the Pawnee from Parks and Recreation, just (laughs) (laughs) It is not. Uh, The highest point in uh, that area is Gray's Peak at 14,278 feet. And like I said at the beginning, there's three other 14ers in that area, as -hmm. well as 12 other peaks that are over 13,000. So this is a, a fairly aggressive area of Rocky Mountain National Park. 
And uh, yeah, fun I mean, fact, between that and the oh, forest, go ahead. yeah. Oh yeah. no, I was to say uh, Gray's Peak. Uh, so those peaks that you mentioned are actually in the the forest area, so they're not even in Rocky Mountain National Park. Oh, that didn't. Okay. Yeah, I think I got that and confused. The, yeah, the forest area I believe is uh, north of Rocky Mountain National Park, but they they're close. Okay. I don't, I don't even care. I just want to go climb all those mountains. <laughs> <laughs> So, and a fun fact, uh, a good portion of the story for the 1984 film Red Dawn featuring Patrick Swayze was set in the Arapaho and Roosevelt National Forest. So that was one of my favorite movies as a kid, honestly, which is kind of funny. Um, <laughs> and Mike, did you know, here's another fun fact that I actually just know off the top of my head. Red okay. Dawn is the first feature film to be given a rated R rating. Really? So that's, yep, that's when the MPAA ratings came out, and that was the first movie that was rated R. I did not know that. That's how go. I know you're a true fan of the film. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I just, I just know lots of great facts about um, Red Dawn, so that's it. <laughs> that's all I know. Uh, the climate for that area, average temps range from a high in the upper 60s, that's Fahrenheit, in July to lows in the teens during the winter months, so it's not too crazy i guess i would say mm-hmm. um it's not warm or significantly cold but it can be bad yeah and the park has a reputation of extreme weather events due to the complex interactions of elevations so whenever you have a storm roll up it's probably gets pretty crazy as far as blizzard conditions go i know yeah. we i've experienced that before where it's like not super cold but mm-hmm. that snow comes in and it like the winds start coming in and whipping and it is just it can be awful well, yeah, it's kind of uh, the that part of the the Rockies are kind of at a point in the the U.S. where you've got, you know, warm air coming up from Mexico, and you've got a lot of different air masses kind of converging, so it can get it creates some really crazy weather in it's that like, area of Colorado. Yeah, it's like uniquely positioned where warm air meets cool air, like for the first yep. time, and it's before it starts rolling up north or going down south, and that's where you get that real imbalance. Yeah, and then you add in the the terrain, so you've got these really high mountains kind of funneling the air around too. So it, it creates some really crazy weather. And Joe, like you said, you've experienced that firsthand. Yeah, there's a cool. Um, I have a time lapse video from the last trip I took of a storm literally hitting. And now I'm forgetting what mountain we were on, but it's we were like on the other side of a ridge, and you could see a storm yeah. cloud hit the mountain and basically like tumble over itself. So like we didn't get hit with the storm. <laughs> Because yeah. it was on the other side, but it's just crazy how to think like the mountains are so high up, they affect the weather just by their features, essentially. Yeah. So types of dangers outside of the exposure that we already talked about, um, there's not really much. I mean, you're, you're, there's moose, black bear. Um, with a child three years old, I'd say the biggest thing I would be concerned about would be the mountain lions. That would be the biggest yep. thing I'd be worried about because those are... Every year you're hearing about a kid or even some like adolescent children getting taken by the lions if they're like straggling from a group. Interesting fact, though, when I when I was researching this case, there's only been 14 reported deaths by mountain lions since like 1905. Oh, wow. In in North America. So while attacks on people from mountain lions are a little more common, actually being killed by one is extremely rare. That's really comforting, actually, just because like I'm always thinking about that when I bring my kids out. Yeah, so, so it, yeah. It, yeah, it's an interesting fact. Um, so just a 
Just a random fact. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Because it always seems like, because, well, it's the news and they're good at sensationalizing things. But yeah. every year there's like three that you hear about and sometimes it's even adults. Yep. So it just makes you terrified that it's going to happen. Yeah. So I'd say the last thing, like we kind of said, outside of those things, exposure and altitude sickness. You heard how many peaks there are. A lot of areas over 10,000 feet. That's kind of where you start getting into that where altitude can affect you. Uh, you're above the tree line at what, like 11,000 to 12,000. So there's yeah. no shelter. So I'm didn't do any of the research on this one. So Mike, you're telling the story. So you'll explain where they were. I, I doubt they had a three-year-old hiking for too long over tree line, but. Yeah. So the trail they were hiking on definitely was below the tree line. And we'll kind of get into, as we go into the timeline, I'll kind of get into the, the trail area a little bit, but just picture you know, uh, below the tree line trail in the Rocky Mountains, it's, you know, rugged, some good elevation gain. There's going to be some rivers and, you know, things like that. So okay. for an adult, a decent trail, but, you know, definitely it'd be tough for a little kid. And some of the interviews that they did with some local people in the area kind of expressed that they were a little shocked that someone would let their three-year-old kid kind of go on this trail just because it's a, a more strenuous trail for even adults. Oh, okay. So, All right. Tell me about Jared, and then uh, we'll get into the timeline because I'm very eager to hear the story now. Jared Edadero was your typical uh, three-year-old boy. He had no medical conditions that are known. He was uh, three years old at the time of his disappearance. Today, he would be 24 I don't know his height and weight that that wasn't reported at the time. Just but average three-year-old boy height. Yeah, and average, weight. average three-year-old boy height and weight. Uh, from the pictures, he looks like a real healthy little kid. Uh, he had kind of brown, dark hair. The clothing he was last seen in was a long-sleeved kind of green and beige, a fleece coat, royal blue sweatpants, and kind of white gray tennis shoes. He had absolutely no survival gear on him. I mean, he's a three-year-old kid, so going out into the wilderness in those clothes, even in the mountains, I mean, it's October, so you yeah, know, there wouldn't be a not... very good, yeah, there wouldn't be a very good chance for him to survive long in that environment on his own. Yeah, and he's three so, years old, so I mean, he's entirely dependent upon adults. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, personality, I I picked up through all the research I did that he was just kind of an adventurous, you know, three-year-old kid. Okay. He, he kind of grew up in the mountains with his uh, dad and sister. So, all right. So the, he he's from the area, so we could argue that altitude shouldn't play too much of a role. Yeah. And, um, so he grew up in the area. What else? Does, so he doesn't have any type of mental deficiency or anything like that. So he's uh from health health records yeah, at wise, least, he's uh, nothing normal. that's publicly been made available. So everything I could find, healthy, normal three year old kid. Okay. Uh, experience in the wilderness. So this is a weird one. We usually like to kind of profile the person that went missing, kind of what kind of experience they had. Mm-hmm. Being a three-year-old kid, uh, he has no survival experience. He's a three-year-old kid. Well, I'd say no survival experience, but if he, if it'd be, I'd be interested to know if they live in a wooded area or a mountainous area. So like he, if he's normally playing in that condition, because yeah. that would make, and I'm assuming here just based off the intro that I read, Yep. That would make more sense for why he was kind of wandering. If if that's something that happened all the time and it was very normal versus like my kids would never be wandering there ever. That's a good point. His dad owned um a resort about 15 miles away 
in the mountains. So I think it's safe to assume that Jared in his, you know, short life grew up in the mountains. So that's probably why he was so comfortable just kind of running down the trail. You know, it's just another day playing outside for him. Sure. Yeah. Cause you think about like, well, I think about my, I, I can only compare to my kids. Yeah. And if we're in an area that they're not familiar with, they're not going too far out of my sight, even if they're kind of trying to goof around because they get scared. But if he's extremely comfortable in that environment, I could see him just going off and being used to it. Getting into some of the characters we're going to talk about in this case. So obviously we have Jared. He's the missing three-year-old. We have Alan Adadero. He's the father of Jared. We have Jocelyn. She's the sister of Jared. We have Rob Osborne and Gareth Watts. Um, these are two hikers that I'm not going to spoil it for you just yet, but these two they're, hikers they're involved come, in the story in some way. They're, in, they're involved <laughs> in the story later on. Okay. <laughs> uh, we have Butch Shoning. He's a friend of Alan that worked at the resort during the time of the disappearance. Uh, we have Bill Nelson, who as of today is retired, but at the time he was the Laramie County undersheriff. Okay. We have a Jane. Now I'm going to butcher this name. Zimjewski. Uh, she was the county. She was one of the county search and rescue people, and she was. I bet the, you ignore the Z, and it's Majewski. That's Majewski, my guess. Maybe. That's my guess, right. and the Z is silent. Right. She was on one of the the K nine units, and obviously we do have some quotes on this case from Les, my favorite survival expert, Les Stroud. <laughs> awesome, and oh, so you're saying we actually have comments from somebody who ran the K nine team? She, uh, I don't know if she ran it. She was on the K nine team. Okay, but. That'll be that'll be cool because I think this is the first time we have uh, a firsthand eyewitness account from somebody who worked with the dogs, because it's always us talking to people who know about them, yep. but no one that was actually assigned to the team or on one of the teams. So, that's and cool. uh, the the thing about this case is the timeline of events is so well documented. Uh, when I was researching this, it's almost down to the hour of kind of what happened. So once I get into the timeline in a few minutes. You'll you'll see some of our cases we the timeline is hazy. You don't really know when things happen, but this one it's it's pretty clear cut when things happened. So, awesome. Yeah. Before we get into the timeline, if you are looking to monetize your podcast and have no idea where to start, check out Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters like you with sponsors to start making some sweet, sweet coin on your show. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform. Users set their own rates and collaborate with the brands directly without exclusivities. Podcorn helped us monetize locations unknown, and we know they can help you too. Check out the marketplace at podcorn.com. That's P-O-D-C-O-R-N.com. To jump right into it, it's October 2nd, 1999. Alan and his two kids, three-year-old Jaron and six Jared and six-year-old Jocelyn were staying at the Poudre River Resort, which was owned by Alan and his brother, Arlen. Alan, uh, in several interviews, talked about how he was attracted to the canyon. He liked being out in the trees and just kind of being out in the wild. And I, I equate this to how people in Wisconsin always go up north on the weekends. They have a house on a lake somewhere, and they relax. So Sure, so this guy's like living his dream. Like He loves the mountains. He, he opens up a little thing, a resort there so he can basically live yeah. where he wants to and work there at the same time. Yeah. Him and his brother own this little resort and, uh, it, it sounds like a pretty cool, cool place. They would wake up in the morning. They would close the resort at 11 o'clock at night. 
you know, they didn't have a care in the world if even if they're working, they, you know, they were together, their family was together 24 seven. So that's what they, they really enjoyed. In this fall time, there was a Christian singles group that was staying at the lodge and they weren't paying any rent at the lodge, but they're helping Alan prepare for winter. So, and oh, apparently, so they, they like worked off their bill. Yeah. And apparently, uh, Alan, Alan knew a lot of these people in the group. And I think his ex-wife was a member of the group. I oh, read that in one of the, one not, of the articles. That's not awkward at all. Yeah. So <laughs> this whole timeline starts when the, the group wanted to go hiking around this trout farm, which was like a mile and a half away from the resort. Alan thinking that they were going to the trout farm was cool with his two kids going with them. And he thought, you know, I know some of these people in the group. Okay. Uh, so it wasn't a group of strangers. He sent his kids off with, he like knows no. these people and they've been living there for a while. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So he thought they were, they were just going like a mile down the road to this trout farm. They're going to kind of stop around a bit and then they would be back. Like I said, it's October 2nd, 1999. So 10 AM in the morning. So three-year-old Jared and his six-year-old sister, Jocelyn, and 11 members of this Christian Singles Network leave for uh, leave the uh, river resort. The dad thinks they're going to this trout farm a mile and a half away, but for some reason, while en route to the trout farm, they decided to go 15 miles uh, west of the resort to uh, the Big South Trail that you mentioned in the beginning of your location profile. And they didn't tell the dad that they made a 16 or 14 mile deviation from the plan. They, they did not. And I wonder if, if Alan had known they were going to the big South trail originally, if he would have let his kids go, I'm, I'm guessing he wouldn't have. I'm guessing I I would agree with that because if he really knows that mountain well, and if what you're saying, what you said earlier, that people know this is a harder trail, he'd be like, uh, no, you shouldn't go there. But if that group was not familiar with the area, maybe they thought they're just going to find a nicer spot. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in, in several of the interviews, Alan talked about how he gave permission for him, for Jared and Jocelyn to go under the assumption they're going to the trout farm. He talks about how Jared never liked to wear his shoes. So he, he kind of left his shoes untied. He goes into descriptions of kind of what kind of clothes he was wearing. You know, just like I said, in the character profile that the fleece jacket, the blue sweatpants, uh, no survival gear. Sure. Bill Nelson, who is the undersheriff, we mentioned, mentioned him uh, in the character profile. He mentions that the church group went up to the Big South Trail. They parked at the trailhead and then they started walking down the trail. This happens in big groups. Uh, Bill said the the group started to separate, so some of the the faster hikers kind of started moving forward, and some of the slower hikers were in the back. There was one adult with Jared and his sister at the time, and they they seemed to be hiking ahead of everybody else. I'm assuming, you know, Jared is a little kid. He's kind of running down the trail, so the sure. adults trying to stay with him. This group of eleven plus Jared and Jocelyn are are hiking down the trail, and. Jared, Jocelyn, and one adult are kind of head of the pack, and everyone else is kind of lagging behind. Sure. Butch, which I mentioned earlier, he gives us a description of the Big South Trailhead. And this is where I was telling you earlier, Joe, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know if I'd let a little kid hike this trail alone. Even that young, I don't know if I'd want him hiking with me either. But so Butch describes the trail as uh, moderate, has ups and downs. He said, 
You could take a kid on it as long as you kept the kid in line and hung on to him. He said there were some areas where the ledges were only 24 inches wide and you'd lose shale all the way down to the river. So it, what was the goes, drop off like? They never mentioned how the, the drop off, but I it, mean, well, I guess for a three year old, it doesn't matter if it's a drop off that goes to a river. If it's five feet or 10 feet, it's still. Yeah. And, you know, Butch goes on to say, he said, it's a moderate trail. He's, it's pretty tough. It, he's, he goes, if you're not in shape, it'll take a lot out of you. So, and he, you know, he's referring to an adult. So being a three-year-old. Kids aren't in shape. They just can't be. No. So, all right. So now we are fast forwarding to 1130 AM. So two fishermen about a mile and a half up the trail from the main group, uh, see Jared and talk to him briefly. And this was near the camp two site. It was reported that when Jared stopped and talked to the, the fisherman, he, he asked something about, are there bears in the area? The fisherman said, no, we haven't seen anything. And then believing that Jared will soon be met by the group of people hiking behind him, they kind of just went back to fishing and Jared just kept walking down the trail. So at this point, Jared is by himself. So between Jeez. so between 10 a.m. and 11.30 a.m., Jared somehow got away from the adult and his sister and now was walking down the trail by himself. Reports from the sheriff's department say that it was unclear if Jared was between the two groups or ahead of the faster group when he met the fishermen. But the important thing to note here, these fishermen were the last people that saw Jared. Okay. So no one after 11 a.m., 11.30 a.m. saw Jared again. So the 11.30 time frame, that's when they said they talked to him or that's when that group caught up to him and... and asked where like Jared was. That was when the fishermen say they talked to Jared. Okay, so he was so, alive and known where he was at 11:30. Yeah. So approximately about 12:15 p.m. the the hiking group realizes that Jared's missing and they start searching for him for about an hour. Uh, some members of the group returned to the river lodge to alert Alan and in one of the interviews Alan was kind of napping and they tell him we have a situation. Your your son's not hurt. He's just missing. Jeez. Trying to soften the blow of they freaking lost his kid. He wakes up from his nap in a, a panic. He just, he runs out to his car. He's like, where are you guys? Where was he? And they, were, they tell him, oh, we were 15 miles up the road at the Big South Trail. And he's like, how did you guys get that far up the road? His, remember, Alan the whole time thought they were hiking at this trout farm just a mile away. Alan's speeding up the road towards the trailhead, some of the uh, members of the group are still out there looking for Jared. Now, this is kind of strange. A couple of the people in the group, including Jared's sister, claim to have heard a scream. But when they're asked by law enforcement, was it a scream of panic? They said it sounded like he, uh, like a scream of joy, like he was playing like with somebody, like a playful scream. But they never were able to actually verify if there was a scream or not it's just kind of a a weird a weird thing to hear i think initially too like does he think he's playing hide and seek with these people and you know what i mean like when you're a kid you yeah. want to kind of give away your position you yep. make like a little noise possibly maybe he was playing hide and seek with uh with maybe the fisherman i don't who knows the fisherman didn't report any any type of scream so yeah, I'm just um, saying in general, like a kid will just hide. Like yeah. it's, a three-year-old doesn't do things that are logical. Bill Nelson, the undersheriff, we're going to mention him quite a bit in this timeline. 
in one interview, he goes on and kind of describes what happened at this point in time. He writes, as Jared, as a three-year-old, is running and playing and having a good time, and I believe there was something 10 to 20 minutes worth of time that he she lost track. And he's referring to the adult that was with them. Sure. He then goes on to say, the adult realized I haven't seen him for a while, and when they went up to try and find him, they kept going down the trail thinking they, they would catch up with him, and they never did. You know, it sounds like just an innocent mistake. I'm sure that the woman that was in charge of keeping track of him to this day probably never let herself live it down. Yeah, unless she's like mentally unstable or something. But that would uh, that would that like ruin you. And I think what probably makes it worse is it sounds like everyone in this group kind of knew each other and knew Alan. So they weren't just strangers. So that makes it harder. Fast forward to 4 p.m. So we're still on October 2nd. Alan had just spent the last couple hours up there at the trail. He was running down the trail. I remember uh, one of the interviews said he was screaming his name, nicknames that he used to call him, you know, just frantically trying to find him. He drives back down to the lodge to call 911, and he finds out that someone had already notified notified the searchers. So at 4 p.m. now, uh, law enforcement has been notified that Jared's missing. So, again, some of these cases you can go a day or two before the person's reported missing. This was quick. He went missing about, you know, they realized he was missing about 12, 15 PM and law enforcement was notified at 4 PM. Yeah. I think too, like the, the age of the, the subject is really what dictates that. Like if it's an adult, it's different, but if it's a three year old kid and the, no one can find him. It's, I think people mobilize pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, I imagine if you or I went missing, they'd probably like, well, they could, those two bozos can well, I mean, how many times have you, How many times have you been like a few hours behind your arrival time? I mean, that's why oh, yeah. anytime I leave my itinerary, I give a, I give a window of like four hours because it's like yep. you don't know what you're going to go into sometimes if it's a new trail. Yeah. Uh, you can kind of look at a topo map and look at the profile and guess, but if it's the first time you're doing it, you don't know what you're going to run into. It's always that like hiker's joke when, you know, you're hiking up elevation on a trail and you're like, oh, just over that ridge will be yeah. done. And then you get over it. Oh, no, just over the next ridge and we'll be done. Like you know it never ends. What was it? Was it Mountain House Foods? Uh, one of the freeze-dried food companies puts those little quotes in the bottom. Yeah. And it was like uh, like the commandments of hiking. It's it's always farther than it seems. And oh, yeah. Never trust a fart, like things like that are written on the bottom. <laughs> never never trust a trail sign that has the mileage on it. Oh, absolutely not ever. Um, but yeah. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, 4 p.m. law enforcement is notified that Jared is missing. Uh, 4.26 p.m., an emergency pager alert is sent to the Laramie County Emergency Service Services Specialist Bill Nelson, the guy that we've been talking about. Okay. Um, and I find it funny, uh, an emergency pager alert. Uh, yeah, they must have like a special system for unique search and rescue cases. Some of some of the people listening might be too young to remember pagers, but they were a thing at one time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, five oh seven p.m. Now, a pager alert is sent to the county search and rescue manager George Jansen. They said lag time here is standard procedure to allow mountain deputies to verify if a search is needed. They sometimes. I've read this before. They won't immediately send send people out there. Like you said, Joe, sometimes people are, you know, slow to come off a trail and people panic and think they're yeah, they give it time to shake out. Fast forward again now to 630 p.m. and search personnel reach the lower Big South Trailhead. 
And from reports I read at this time, they deployed around 65 uh, search and rescue members, like trained people. So already within four or five hours, you've got a good sizable team of professionals out in the field searching. Sure. 8 p.m. rolls around. Searchers from the lower and upper trailhead meet at campsites 7 and 8. No sign of Jared. The search team's plan to expand and bring in more resources, including a helicopter, which I'm going to get into in a second. We're moving into the next day. So now it's October 3rd, 1999. Uh, 7 a.m., we get a report that the overnight search team members are told to be extremely vigilant at dawn as family members tell searchers Jared wakes up at dawn. They also deployed dive teams to the Big South River. So they they had searchers out there at night even, uh, stopping through the woods. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't stop. You, you got a three-year-old kid in October in the Rockies yeah. at night. Like, there's you're up against a clock of survival. Yeah. It's going to be tough for a three-year-old to, you know, he, he could make it through the night. We don't know the weather conditions. I believe they were pretty, pretty calm weather conditions. There wasn't any snow or rain during the search. At least nothing came up in any of the reports that explicitly said that, you know, there was heavy they, snow or yeah, they, rain. they couldn't do something as a result of weather or some other yeah. incident. So uh, 7 a.m. rolls around in an Air Force helicopter, a Huey UH-1N from F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming, makes a, makes a first flight through the area and then heads to Fort Collins Loveland Municipal Airport to refuel. This helicopter refuels and then heads back out around 3.30 p.m. It gets out to the search area, and then it starts struggling with the fuel load and uh, mountain conditions and started stalling out. And it ended up falling 100 feet and then crashing up in the Big South Trail. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... So this, they, like, put too much fuel in for the lift. That, you know, it didn't It didn't say, but I'm, I'm guessing by the that they mentioned fuel load in mountain conditions that somebody miscalculated. Yeah. And there was too much weight and it, it couldn't get a, enough lift on board. The helicopter that crashed were four air force um, personnel. And then Mark sheets, who is a Loveland resident. And he was one of the County search and rescue members. The report goes on to say that sheets was the only crew member, not in a seat. He was actually on the floor with the door wide open and he saw the rotors hit the tops of the trees and pieces of the helicopter spray into the forest. He tried to shut the door, but a severed tree limb came through and struck the Air Force doctor uh, in the face, fracturing his eye socket. The, cra- the, the copter ended up crashing, but the all four of the Air Force crew were able to escape the helicopter. Uh, Sheets was trapped in it, and he was able to get pulled out of the, the the copter but he suffered some pretty severe injuries he he suffered a severe concussion a 13 inch l-shaped gash that left his femur exposed he also suffered three broken vertebrae in his lower back and a broken shoulder wow. so uh, he was pretty torn up amazingly everyone survived the crash you'll learn later on in the timeline that because of this crash they they weren't able to search some of the areas where jared was that presumed to be so. Oh, geez. Yeah. So again, an issue early on in the search, you know, affected their ability to you know, search the the full area. So it always seems to happen. I don't know why. Thankfully, everyone on the helicopter survived. So 
Uh, 6 p.m. rolls around. All five aboard the helicopter trans, uh, transported to the hospital, and they, they survived, but they all had significant injuries. So fast forward to October 4th. The search stretched into the third day. Now searchers combed. Oh, I do. Banks. I do want to say real quick, Mike, because I was just looking. Were were that Air Force bases? I was thinking it was more mid. Yeah, it's near Cheyenne, which is just north of Denver. So okay, they should totally know how to fly through the mountain. Yeah, it sounds like maybe just uh, uh, somebody made a mistake. Sure, didn't didn't do their calculation correctly, or maybe there was a mechanical issue. The the research I did didn't specify what actually happened to the helicopter, but okay. So, like I was saying, it's uh, October 4th now, and, you know, the search stretched into the third day. Searchers were combing riverbanks, up steep slopes. Dive teams peered into small pools uh, left in the narrow, slow-moving rivers. They had a plane that was passing overhead. They had a llama helicopter, and I actually had to look this up. It's a real helicopter uh, called a llama. A llama helicopter? (laughs) Yeah. Um, From a company called Geosice... I'm butchering the name, but it was from a company based out of Fort Collins and they joined searchers, um, but they were also encountering uh, swirling winds that required full power to prevent crashing. So, oh, wow. So that's probably all those peaks that we were talking about causing all those issues. Yeah. So uh, a second helicopter in the search almost crashed. So um, like we were saying about weather conditions in the Rockies, they can get pretty gnarly uh, in a hurry. Yeah. So, and another issue they were starting to have by the 4th was they had a lot of well-meaning but ill-equipped people trying to join in on the search. So, also oh, they're fighting off inexperienced quote-unquote yep. searchers while trying to coordinate helicopters crashing, helicopters almost crashing and look for this 3-year-old. Yeah, so, so it's just the, a big cluster. Yeah, so the sheriff's department mentioned in several articles I read that they they really were having an issue with you know, these people were well-meaning. They really wanted to help, but they just weren't equipped. And we've we've talked about this in a lot of other episodes. There's a You really got to come at these searches in a very systematic way so you don't disturb, you know, the search area. Sure. Um, especially for canine units. Well, and if you're not so, trained, you don't know what to look for. Yeah, exactly. Like when you're looking for a certain thing, especially for a small child in a big area, because, I mean, I you've wandered off trail or gone with people that go off trail, like a f- like 20 feet off trail, you can all of a sudden lose sight of people and that's an adult. So you have a kid wandering for 20 minutes, like without anyone watching him. Yeah. He could be anywhere. The next couple of days. So October 5th through the 7th, more than 200 trained searchers, dozens of dog teams, professional trackers, a dive team and a plane search for Jared without finding any solid clues. They've really thrown everything they had at it, and they are coming up with nothing. So by so like I, not even clothing, nothing, no yeah. sign at all, no tracks. There was mention from the under sheriff that some of the tracking dogs were picking up some you know weird scents and kind of tracking in you know certain areas. But I, I can get into that a little later. Yeah, I was gonna say it just hit me. I'm like, we didn't talk about this canine person that you introduced in the beginning. So that's coming. That's coming. Okay, good. October 8th, 1999, it's 7 p.m. The The search for Jared is suspended due to lack of clues, and the family's notified. So he went missing midday on the 2nd, and the search lasted all the way through most of the day on the 8th. And then, you know, at some point, 
you know, resources are finite. They can't search indefinitely for him. Well, and a kid that age is not living that long. No one. Yeah. yeah a three-year-old's going to have a tough time living that many days on his own out in the woods. So yeah, Bill in the, Nelson, especially in the mountains in October. Yeah, exactly. So Bill Nelson, the undersheriff kind of summed up the effort that they put into this. He said, we worked for eight solid days to begin with, and that was 24 hours a day for eight days. We did some night searching. It was limited to a certain extent, but we always had people out in the field to make noise. So if somebody was out there now, Jared would have heard it. He would have maybe responded or went to. So, you know, Bill is trying to say, we we had people out there for 24 hours a day for eight days straight. Think about how hard it is to like basically say you're giving up. Mm-hmm. It, it, like even though everybody knows that you're beyond a reasonable amount of time, like yeah. how how do you have to be the one to like bear the weight of making the call of saying we're done? Yeah. So Jane mentioned. So I, I teased Jane. She actually made comments about the the news media. So this I don't remember this case back in 1999, but apparently it became a kind of a big nationwide story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jane, who was on the canine unit, she said it was very intense, very media friendly. I mean, there was media, CNN. So it became a real nationwide episode. So that put a lot of stress on us and a lot of stress on the dogs. Um, other accounts of kind of the media being a kind of a pest to the searchers. Um, the current county sheriff, Justin Smith, was a sergeant with the department during the search for which he was the public information officer. He said the crash added to the stress of the search that only grew more frustrating as the national media took notice. He said there were TV trucks and newspaper reporters swarming the remote site after a grand jury in another chilling child case, the death of John Benet Ramsey. I do remember that case. Oh, that's um, probably why we don't remember this one is because that yeah. one definitely eclipsed everything that was going on in the news. Yeah, so that... The John Benet Ramsey case, I remember, was all over the news at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, this The current sheriff said 17 satellite trucks uh, at one time lined up Colorado Highway 14 with anchors and fur coats walking around and anybody and everybody calling us for information. He also said psychics professed to know where searchers could find Jared. Jeez. A barefooted man with a mule showed up at the search site ready to track him down. And even an American Indian came to perform a ritual asking the mountain to give up the boy. So it it kind of turned into a freak show towards the end of the search. It turned into a circus. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's just got to be, like, infuriating and frustrating. Yeah. So um, the original search ended on October 8th, and several years go by with no clues, no evidence. The, I mean, this area was heavily searched, and they found nothing. So... Um, fast forward to June 5th of 2003. This is where Rob and Gareth come into play. So this and is who Rob and Gareth were hikers. You said, yeah, these guys okay. were kind of uh, experienced backpackers that have hiked this area for many years. Uh, they're okay. friends. They lived in the area. Uh, so Rob, the, now these are Rob's word he, words. He writes, Basically, what we would do is pick an area we would like to hike and explore. And he's talking about Poudre Canyon. And he goes on to say, and so we went along the Big South Trail for the first time. Gorgeous hike. Beautiful, beautiful river. This is really a wild area. Uh, And then Rob goes on to say, and the reason why Gary and I so much enjoy hiking together. So 
it's kind of like our group of friends. We, we like to hike together. So these guys have been doing it for years. Rob goes on to say, and then it was just coincidental that we wound up in a rock field and said, you know, let's hike up that ridge. And I think it's about 2000 foot hike up, uh, elevation to get to the top of it. But he goes, it's really remarkable country. Then Gareth goes, yeah, pretty much was like almost a scramble. So you're watching your feet and basically you're just focused a few feet in front of you, your own feet. So you don't twist an ankle or something. So I've been on, you know, hikes like that where it's like loose shale. Oh yeah. You, uh, you video from when we did that in Montana, when we <laughs> yeah. summoned that mountain. I mean, it, it looked, and it wasn't that high up, but that, that scree was so bad. It took way too long. It was exhausting. Yeah, it's exhausting because it everything's moving under your feet and you have to be really careful every step you take. Well, yeah, it's like one step forward, half step back on every step. And it it takes a, an immense amount of concentration just so you don't you know slip and just go tumbling down. So yeah. that's what these guys are hiking up. So Rob goes on to say, we hiked that area a couple times before and we had talked about the mystery of Jared, whether he had been swept downstream, abducted by a mountain lion, or if there had been something more sinister than that. This time we decided to go off trail, and we just walked right in. And we knew right away, oh, they walked right in, and uh, they they found a shoe. They kind of lodged under a little outcropping uh, for a rock. And Rob goes, we knew right away that it was probably Jared Atadera's clothes. Oh, so they are aware that they are hiking in an area where this kid went missing. Yeah, so they, okay. they, they mentioned a couple times that they – they hike there and they kind of talk like what happened to him, you know, the theories they think might've happened. Well, I mean, that's basically how the show started is we would always talk about that stuff and just said, Hey, let's start recording it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the spot where they found the shoe was about 550 feet higher from Jared's last seen point. So, um, pretty high up. And like we said, up a really rugged, loose rock, something that a five or three year old's not going to be able to hike. Well, or it will be very, uh, well, and you get those scree fields, it's very visible. Yeah. It's not like wooded. So even if he was scrambling up this rock face during the search, you would have seen that. Yeah. So uh, Gareth goes on to describe the shoe. He goes, it was pretty pristine. It was like somebody had just took it, took it off their right foot. You know, it was fresh. I thought like I would see a kid standing in front of me. So I've seen pictures of these shoes. We'll uh, we'll post these on our Facebook page. The shoes look like they're fresh out of the a box from the store. Like not weathered at all. Not weathered one bit for being up in the woods, you know, the mountains for three years. Jeez. Um. So Rob and Gareth continue to hike around that area, and they eventually find the other shoe, a brown fleece jacket, blue sweatpants turned inside out. And one pant leg was mostly scattered by birds that were using his nesting material. So uh, Rob and Gareth take photos. They leave everything untouched. They take photos of where they found everything. Then they picked up some of the clothing and they took it back down to the sheriff's office. And the sheriff's office emailed the photos to Alan, who uh, confirmed that they looked like the clothes that Jared was wearing. Oh, that's got to be awful. Yeah. I like had a st- sick feeling in my stomach the entire time you're talking about how they're like uncovering the clothes and stuff. And you're just imagining this poor three-year-old kid, like scared, confused, not understanding what's happening. So that's just awful. Uh, so the next day we're, we're talking June 6th 
of 2003, searchers, it took searchers about an hour to reach the site near Campsite 2, where they found the remaining clothing scattered across a 20-foot 20 um, foot area. Some of the items were sheltered from the elements and some were exposed. Uh, so they, they said, while the cloth jacket had what appeared to be puncture marks and the pants were tattered, the nylon shoes, nylon shoes had little weathering. So it's, it's very puzzling why the shoes looked so pristine. I don't think you'll, you'll find out from the, uh, when we get into the theories, no one really knows why. And I think people are kind of just, they're conveniently leaving that out of their explanation for what happened to Jared. Okay. So it's now June 14th and the, a team of Larimer County Sheriff's office members, uh, and search and rescue members and the Colorado division of wildlife and necro search meet at the big South trailhead to start searching for remains of Jared. And later Adadero and personnel from the local child protection network join the group. So, they are they're going back up there now to see if there's any other remains. You know, they've they found the clothing and everything, but I think they were going up there to look for bones and things like sure. that. Yeah, just find the remains. So nine thirty AM on the fourteenth, searchers hike in approximately one point five miles and make the five hundred foot vertical climb up to the site where hikers had found the clothing. Now it's about eleven thirty AM and this is where it gets uh, grizzly the searchers find a skull fragment as they describe it as a skull cap in a crevice and a tooth sitting on top of a log and Jeez. it's they said the skull was positioned in a way that would made it hard to see it from the air you'd kind of have to be on the ground and looking at it from a, an angle okay uh, but it, it was like lodged in kind of a crevice so um, not you know not easy. It wouldn't have been easy, you know, easy to get it in there. And then one single molar sitting on top of a log. So are the, are are you thinking, and we don't have, you don't have to answer now if you want to wait till we get the theories, but are you thinking like foul play or are you thinking like he was climbing in there to like try and hide or get warm or, you know, I, I don't know. I, I will get you, I'll get to my theories in a few minutes. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll try. I just really want to get there. So I'll slow down. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're wrapping up the timeline here. It's, it's 5 PM now on the, the 14th. So that massive team of people that went looking for their remains, they get back down and they address the media at the trailhead and kind of announce what they found. So to recap, they found uh, his fleece jacket uh, kind of tattered, blue sweatpants, two pristine nylon shoes, a skull cap, and a single tooth. So Jeez. it's it's very, uh, very strange, you know, to find just a single tooth and a skull cap. Yeah. You wonder what happened to the rest of him. We've got some, some comments from the sheriff's department after this second uh, recovery mission. So Bill said, now these are exact words, there were canine alerts that would go in that direction. Now, whether they were right at the scree field or before it, but they were at least alerting up the hill. That's why I'm reasonably certain we searched it, because when a dog alerts like that, we're thinking, okay, something must be up there. Let's go up there and search for it. But we never found anything. So that kind of leads me to think that 
this area where they found the tooth and the skull cap and the clothing was searched in the original search. Yeah, and if he's still awake and moving and it's not recovery at that point, that really shouldn't be an issue. Like we said on Screefields, like you can see people from a long ways away on yeah. those on those on those sides. So but now we have kind of conflicting information that came out of the official search and rescue report. They write searchers on foot had never made it up to the 9,120 foot elevation at Jared skull, uh, where Jared skull and tooth were found. The air force helicopter would have likely searched the area had it not crashed. So, Oh wow. So it, it could have possibly been an area that was supposed to get searched. And because the helicopter crashed, it was just completely overlooked. That's what the, the report says, but you also have the undersheriff kind of conflicting with that, saying that they had canine alerts in that direction, and he believes it would have been searched. So, um, you know, who do you believe? The official report, the undersheriff? Well, I just I guess, hope to God it's not one of those, like, he said, she said, he thinks she's doing something she's not. Yeah. And it's like what they trained us in for being a paramedic. When you're in a situation that's, like, chaotic and emergency – like the whole thing is, uh, they teach us in CPR too. Like if somebody drops down, you're gonna perform CPR, and you notify somebody to call nine one one. If you don't pick somebody out specifically and tell them to do it, like no one will do it because everyone thinks everyone else is doing it. Yeah, uh, that that's interesting. And here's where our friend uh, Les Stroud comes in. He he kind of leads with a more um, mysterious outcome. He he writes, I think whatever's happening is beyond our understanding. In a lot of these cases, search and rescue or the volunteers searching have already gone over the certain areas, not once, not twice, but even dozens of times. And then the child is found there maybe a year, maybe a few years later. So I don't know what point he's trying to get at, but I think he's stressing that in a lot of these cases where they eventually find remains of these people, have they've been searched multiple times. Well, this is the second case that we've done that that's happened. Yeah. There was one question uh, asked of Butch. So he was uh, he was a friend of Alan and worked at the resort. They asked him, they said, is there any way Jared could have climbed up to that spot on his own? He writes, no way. Boy, that's a hard one. Not all the way. I couldn't see him going. He lived in a cabin. He's a three-year-old. There's no way that would happen. I mean, it was a struggle for Gary and I to get there. Very rough terrain. So... And that's a guy who who interacts with this kid every day, all summer long, in mountainous regions. So it's like yeah. I would take his word over anyone else's. Yeah. So uh, really strange case. There was a lot of weird theories. We can we can get into some of the official ones, or I don't know, Joe, if you you've off the top of your head what you're thinking on this one. I want to hear the official ones so okay. that I can formulate my real opinion because I'm kind of so, all over the place right now. So I want to, I want to get moved in one direction. Okay. So Jane, who was on the canine unit, she writes, my conclusion was an animal encounter right at the beginning. And so I'm not as sure officially what has really been released as a finality, but it pretty much points to an animal encounter. So Jane, who we said was one of the search and rescue, um, volunteers on the canine unit thinks it was an animal encounter now okay. bill ne- bill nelson of the sheriff's you know the the county sheriff's he writes if a cat actually took him which is what i believe happened the cat would have taken him someplace and buried him and with all the activity that was going on it probably would have left 
because we would have scared it away and it would have come back later. So Bill thinks it was a mountain lion attack. He may have taken uh, Jared to some spot out, you know, away from the searchers, buried him and then come back later. Um, okay. We'll get, I'll get into why I think, I think the mountain lion theory is bogus. <laughs> okay. Um, Which is funny because I was just about to say I kind of agree with the mountain lion theory, so I'm very happy that that's happening. <laughs> okay. So your theory is mountain lion. I do believe mountain lion. I do believe mountain lion, and just because I've gone hiking in Colorado where like I'll look up, and even though they're afraid of people, if they get up at an altitude and they have the high ground, yeah, they won't go too far because I've gone – like hiking at night on trails and you shine your lights up and you can like see eyes like pretty darn close. It freaks you out and yeah. they're just watching you. You know, you're too big to attack, but they're just kind of hanging there. Yep. So how, what I'm thinking is like perfect storm situation. They are getting hits on that mountainside. Yeah. It could be a mix of the dogs literally going after either the smell or the cat. Yep. And some miscommunication or confusion due to the helicopter crash that they didn't actually search that area. Now, I'd say my wishful thinking just for like people's sanity and yeah. like the adults and stuff, it's possible he got attacked and dragged up there and he was long gone as far as like he passed. And I would say he was, yeah, he's so small by himself. I see yeah. him getting picked off by a mountain lion and not surviving the ordeal, which is why they heard maybe what they sound, thought was a scream. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that wasn't him and it wasn't painful. Maybe it was quick, but I feel like totally got taken by a mountain lion and they could never find it. And they just, like you said, it was tucked away in that crevasse. Yeah. Kind of like an area where a mountain lion might hide, um, you know, a, a fresh kill. Yeah. So that's, that's where I'm leaning. And so, uh, so tell me, <laughs> tell me why it's bogus. So um, this is a direct quote from Alan, Jared's dad. He he said in an interview, I hear constantly about a mountain lion. Yes, when they've tested Jared's, Jared's clothing, there was no mountain lion hairs, no DNA, no blood, nothing on his clothing. The clothing was sent to the CBI, which is the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. The clothing was tested by the CBI. No mountain lion hairs, no blood, nothing on any of the articles of clothing. He goes on to say, if a mountain lion would have attacked him, they would have gone for the stomach area. His jacket would have been in threads, but his jacket was fine. Uh, he was told he was told this by several mountain lion experts. He said his jacket would not have survived a mountain lion attack. His shoes that were found up in the mountain, as told by investigators, do not look like they were in the wilderness for three and a half years. He writes... The other interesting thing about the shoes is you would think they would be scuffed up if he had been dragged up the side of a mountain. His pants were found in good condition with only rodent and bird marks from animals using it for nesting material. Okay. Um, Yeah, so, you know. Yeah, that does poke a lot of holes in it. It really does. And it gets stranger. So Alan, yeah, no, it gets weird. Alan goes on to say, in one of the reports, a person says, the reason why we didn't find any DNA or blood or anything on Jared's clothing clothing was because he or something removed his clothing before he was attacked. See, and okay, so before you said that, and I'm not lying just to make it sound like I'm smart. <laughs> I was I'm I was almost wondering if like cuz he's 3 
if he's wearing a diaper or pull up or he wasn't and he wet himself. And yeah. uh, I know my, a lot of my kids when they were younger and like they'd have an accident, they just yep. take their clothes off and throw them. Yeah. I mean, th- so I, you could I, imagine, okay, let's, let's go on this theory real quick and then I'll, 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 I'll let you jump in and tell me I'm wrong, but imagine he soils himself. Yep. And that could potentially keep animals away for a significant period of time from messing with the clothing. Yeah. It, it wouldn't explain why you would take his coat off. No, but that you're talking three-year-old kid. I have, yeah, I have a, a three-year-old right now that does very odd things with clothing regarding bathrooms. And you know, <laughs> it, he could have gotten hypothermia and just yeah. because he's three, I mean, I I'm assuming he would still have that urge to, you know, feel hot and want to take, like your survival off. instinct kicks in at some point, like where you're autonomous. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's strange. So it's strange that one of the reports even mentions that they they say he or something took his clothes off before the attack happened. So they're convinced some sort of attack happened. They're just confused at why the clothing was not affected by the attack. Yeah, and, and they say that because there are so many hikers on that trail, they said the mountain lion would have had to drag Jared's body 500 feet up the side of a cliff, which some people find a little far-fetched. They don't think a mountain lion's going to go through that kind of effort to... Yeah, they'll abandon the kill and try and come yeah. in later. So, you know, the dad was asked, you know, more questions about this, and he goes on to say... If something took his clothing off before he was attacked, why was it found 500 feet up the mountain? So that is another very interesting point. I could see one thing, you know, his clothes were removed five, you know, 500 feet lower and then his body dragged up the side of the mountain, but his clothes were found 500 feet up the mountain, yeah. but his clothes don't show any sign of being dragged up 500 feet, you know, up the mountain. Yeah. So that's really bizarre. Like his shoes should be scuffed up. No. Nope. Yeah, you're right. And his shoes weren't even tied. So re- in reality, his shoes would have fallen off long before he got 500 feet up to the where his remains are found. Yeah. And then if an animal was using the shoes or carrying them, they'd be chewed up from that yeah. animal. And experts told his dad, they said his pants were found inside out. He goes, I was told by mountain lion experts, mountain lions don't pull clothing off you especially your pants and leave them there. Well, and even the if they are, they'll out. shred them. Yeah. So that, that that's kind of what made me lead to my example of he might've removed his pants. Yeah. So th- that's a possibility. I mean, I guess any, he, maybe somehow he climbed 500 feet up himself. Um, yeah. Who knows? Alan, the father of Jared, he says myself and my family feel strongly that there is someone out there who knows a little bit more than we do. Their gut is that there's foul play. Their gut is that there's foul play. Somebody either now he didn't, he didn't call anybody out. I mean, and I read a lot of the, the police reports. I didn't put them in the notes here, but the, the police interviewed everybody. Okay. I was going to say, yeah. So they they were like, I was going to say like there weren't somebody that they left behind that no. could be an actor. Yeah, they talked to everybody. They talked to everybody in the church group. They talked to everybody at the resort. They talked to everybody just driving by in their cars. So they they talked to everybody, and they had no evidence to believe that any of these people were involved in his disappearance in any way. So you gotta you gotta take them for their word that 
you know, my first inkling was, all right, it was the fisherman, or maybe there was somebody in the the group, the eleven, you know, adults did yeah. something, but you would have, you know, it just doesn't seem likely that someone in that church group would have, you know, seen something if one of those people had abducted him. Yeah. And I started going down kind of the path, like, okay, maybe like an accident occurred and they tried disposing of it and saying like, yeah. Oh, he got lost. I don't know. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, it's uh, the media had a lot of crazy theories. Of course um, they did. sounds like they ruined half the freaking search. Right? Yeah. So, you know, they, they thought killed by a predator fell behind boulders and died drowned in the river, which makes no sense because they found yeah. all this stuff up on the mountain. Yeah, so there were there were theories of abduction, even strange conspiracy theories. Um, yeah, investigators questioned everyone from Allen to members of the Christian Singles Group to the fishermen who were presumably the last to see Jared. They talked to Allen's ex-wife, who was living in San Diego, and came to Colorado after hearing Jared was lost. No red flags after talking to anybody. So, um, a truly... Truly bizarre case. His official cause of death was, they said it was something like, um, they didn't know, but they think it was a mountain lion. That's not the official way they wrote it, but that's kind of what they said. So everyone is kind of leaning on, you know, the mountain lion attacking him. That's, I, I think it's, I think it's weird. Uh, there's a lot of weird circumstances, I'm I'm strongly for the mountain lion theory. That's 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 it's, it that's wouldn't be uncommon for. for you know the mountain lion to you know attack him and then take him to a, his spot and then the remains a lot of the remains to wash away. We've yeah, and that's where I'm, I'm wondering if there's just a weird again. There's no logic in a in a three year old's mind. So something made him take his clothes off, his jacket, whatever, because they didn't find like no. a t shirt. Right? They just found his like shoes. So like he could have been wearing the t-shirt still. Like he took a jacket off. We you'll see in the pictures it looked almost like a pullover. Okay. But like they didn't find underwear or so like here's what I'm thinking is he and I'm just going off cuz this is what happens when my kids when they're little would wet themselves. So he wetted himself and took his jacket off to take his pants off cuz if it was kind of bulky and then got taken away by a cat. And they found they found his and maybe he climbed up there a little bit and his shoes weren't on, and they got scattered around over a three year period of time. That that doesn't explain why they're in pristine condition and why like nothing really happened to the clothing. I don't have an answer for that, but like that's the only thing I can think of that's reasonable. That's like a logical explanation that that doesn't involve foul play, and then the ones that do involve foul play, it's weird that the stuff was. Left yeah, out it's there, uh, I guess. the thing I'm really having a hard time grasping is how he got up 500 feet to where his remains were found. I could see. Yeah, I mean, that that's I could, no small task. I could believe it for if an adult. they found his clothing just shredded up, blood on it. I could see that, but the fact that his coat or the fleece that he was wearing was, you know, it wasn't new, but it it looked fine, and the shoes were literally like hadn't been out in the woods, <laughs> so it it's bizarre. We'll never know. 
<laughs> did, so did they, when they found the the shoes and stuff and they said it's kind of tucked away, was there like a big overhang over it? Like, is it possible that it wasn't being weathered normally? No, it, it wasn't like a cave or anything. It definitely would be covered by snow. Okay. And it was just kind of obscured from aerial view. So, um, okay. So like it wasn't easy to see from like a helicopter, but it still was exposed to the full elements, not protected in any way. For sure. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, even the pants, like they mentioned were, you know, birds and rodents were kind of picking pieces away for nesting. So they were, they were kind of exposed. I, I feel bad for the, the dad, you read the, the interviews with him and he's just, just wrecked by this even to this day i mean he has a little closure finding the remains it's still that that idea of like not knowing would just be horrible so so what so what's your theory did you even say your theory i don't think you did i think you're skirting around without having to say anything (laughs) i i think it was foul play you do and do you do you have no idea who it was you just think it was foul play or do you have someone in mind I don't have anyone in mind. I, I mean, the law enforcement interviewed everybody. I think there's a third party that was not known to the people hiking out there that abducted him. And it's the only thing in my mind that makes sense. I don't know. I mean, a mountain lion attack seems very reasonable, but like we, like I said earlier, it's they're very rare fatalities from mountain lions. There's only been 14 of them since, uh, I have the stat here, 1915. In the U.S. and Canada. Oh wow, yeah, that's that's definitely new news to me. Yeah, so they're they're extremely rare, and think of how many times little kids are hiking out in the woods. Yeah, and there's only been 14 fatalities, and these are reported fatalities. Sure. So there there could be some that have gone unreported. So yeah, I it would make sense, but there's too many weird weird facts about the case with the clothing and. Why was only one tooth found on top of the log? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like where did the rest of them go and what? Yeah, and there's there's some, there's some weird people out there. I can I can I can I can like hang on to and the side of your the... train. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. not gonna get fully on it. And the skull cap thing, um, finding just the the top of his skull doesn't make any sense to me either. You would assume if a a predator was, you know consuming uh, this is grisly to talk about but consuming somebody that they're not going you know you're probably going to find pieces they find lots of bone fragments at these sites when when you, yeah. when an animal attack has happened it, it's very messy and there's lots of evidence essentially left behind yeah and it's so that's why it's that's why people who are experts kind of can say this is not normal because yep. they are used to seeing even though it's rare and it's not just the lions it's any animal or if someone perished and an animal was feeding on them. Yeah. It is a messy scene. And even, uh, you know, several years later, you're, you know, the predator isn't going to clean up after itself. Yeah. They're going to leave, you know, bones will be left in the the area. And, um, yeah, I don't know. All right. I, I, that's my theory. I wish I had more, you know, more to it. I think it's uh, human related foul play. I'm, right. I'm with Alan, Alan, Alan and I agree. So, well, uh, that concludes another episode, Joe. Uh, anything else uh, before we wrap it up? No, I do not. Thanks again for tuning into our show. We appreciate all of you for listening and sharing Locations Unknown with your friends and family. Be sure to like us on 
Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to for the show as well. Uh, we don't have video on there, but it does play the show audio with the cover. So if you listen to it on YouTube, you can do that. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, as we said in the beginning, check out our Facebook store. We got a, uh, some cool swag there. Otherwise, you can donate to our, our Patreon account. Just search Locations Unknown. Just remember when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or hiking, remember to leave no trace. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.